Well, let's, uh, let's get into God's Word this morning. I think so often in church, as in life, um, we don't get the right answers because we're asking the wrong questions. Most of us are old enough to remember the, the kind of heated days of, of the worship wars, congregations divided, churches split over hymns versus praise songs, uh, over that all-important question, can drums be in the church? Um, and and it, that's not at all to uh, suggest that, that the worship wars are over. There are still skirmishes happening, debates, questions over, do we dim the lights or not? How loud do we make the music? Where's the line between worshiping God with excellence and putting on a show? Or is there a line? And I suspect questions like that will be with us uh, until Jesus returns. And partly I expect that because those questions were with us when Jesus came the first time. It was not a new thing. And then, just as now, one of the issues at the root of the problem is, is that we're trying to come to the answer, but we're asking the wrong questions. And, and thankfully, um, we'll see in our passage that we're looking at this morning, um, Jesus has the patience and the wisdom to hear our wrong questions and give the right answers. So turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 4. Um, we're going to spend our morning looking at Jesus' right answer to our wrong question. If you don't have a Bible on you, just go ahead and slip up your hand. One of our ushers will grab one for you. We want you to have God's Word uh, on your lap in front of you so that you can see this is, this is God's Word, not John's Word. I, I don't presume to have anything of value for you today, um, but God's Word is rich. Um, and uh, if you don't have a Bible or a Bible you can read easily, please take this one with you. Um, we're glad to have them go. Uh, Praise God, we had to order a dozen new Bibles today because they keep walking out of here with people, and we are excited about that. Um, John chapter 4, um, we're taking uh, now until December, just kind of relaying the foundation of who we are as a church, visiting each one of these six distinctives on these banners here, um, being reminded who are we, why do we do what we do. And uh, this morning we're looking at passionate worship, worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, so follow along with me as I read John 4. I just want to read uh, verse 23. Jesus says, But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. As I said, Jesus here is giving the, the right answer to a wrong question. And the first thing that he says is true worship is, is not about where, it's about who. He says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers, and that begs the question, who are these true worshipers that he's talking about? And, and, and the implication there is there are false worshipers, worshipers who worship in error. And we see in the background of this story, if you, if you know the context of this verse or this, of this book, those familiar with, with John are going to know we're right in the middle of a, a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well. And if you really know the book, you know that's a big deal. This is not a small thing. The whole scenario here is highly charged. If you remember back in the Old Testament, shortly after Solomon... 
um, the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms, right? They, they broke down the middle. The northern kingdom is called Israel. I know that's confusing. Uh, and then the southern kingdom is called Judah, and that's where Jerusalem is. And, and the northern kingdom was more wicked, more quickly. And so God took them away into exile first, and uh, he brought in the Assyrians. And what the Assyrians did was deported a bunch of the men, took them out, and put in a whole bunch of Assyrian men to just kind of mix the race. It brought stability to their empire. It was just a political strategy. But what that created was a bunch of half-breed Jews in that northern kingdom. And, and the Jews had this identity from God as God's chosen people that were told not to intermarry with the other races. And so now you have from, from Judah, the southern kingdom, is this disdain for those, those half-breeds in the northern kingdom. And that disdain continued to grow. Um, and, and, and the... the Northern Kingdom eventually returned to serving Yahweh, but they kind of had their own bent to how they did it. They only accepted the first five books, the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of the Bible. Um, and, uh, and they didn't have access to the temple in Jerusalem because of this battle. And so based on information from the Pentateuch, they built their temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria, in this Northern Kingdom. Later, there was a war between the Samaritans and the Jews, and the Jews destroyed that temple. So these guys took worship wars seriously, like people died, buildings were destroyed. Um, they didn't like each other. There is serious bad blood here. So that's what's behind this crazy story. As Jesus first even dares to walk through Samaria, or that northern kingdom of Israel, and then begins to talk with this Samaritan woman. He asks her to draw him some water from the well. And she's shocked that he would even speak to her. Not only is she a Samaritan and not a pure Jew, but she's a woman. And, and no man in that day would speak to another woman in public. She's at the well in the heat of the day. That's not normal behavior in Israel. Uh, it suggests that she is not an upstanding member of society. And no rabbi, no teacher as Jesus was, uh, would ever interact, associate with, with an immoral woman. And nonetheless, Jesus asks her for water. The conversation goes on. We learn exactly why she's at the well at noon. Jesus knew all along she has no husband. She's had five husbands, and the man she's living with now is not her husband. She's a sinner. She is an outcast of outcasts. This was just absolutely disgraceful. And as Jesus uncovers this, she brings up the issue of the temple. Which temple is the right temple? And some say that she's, she's trying to change the topic. She's trying to kind of dissuade Jesus. Let's not talk about me anymore. And that's kind of where I used to land as I read this passage. But, but I'm not sure I think that anymore. If we give her the benefit of the doubt, Jesus has just told her what, what she will later describe as everything I ever did. He has laid her sin bare. He has left her exposed. And she's convicted. She's clearly convicted. She's later going to go out and, and share the good news of this Jesus that has come. I think it's very possible in the presence of Jesus, with her sin laid bare, conviction heavy on her heart, that she's sincerely asking Jesus as a prophet there hadn't been a prophet in Israel for, for 300 years. And she's saying, okay, clearly you're a prophet. So where do I go? 
How do I get right with God? Is it this temple or that temple? This battle has raged on for years. I don't, need, I don't care about that anymore. I just need to get right with God. Where do I go? And this is where Jesus begins to give her the right answer to the wrong question. Verse 21, Jesus says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You as Samaritans worship what you do not know. So he's saying, you, you guys got it wrong. You, you didn't get it. We, the Jews, worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But his point is, it's not about where. Things are changing here. He's, he's correcting her whole theological viewpoint. But he's welcoming her as a sinner, as an outcast, as a filthy one. Come. As a serial adulterous and Samaritan woman, come and worship. True worshipers will come from those who are the worst of sinners, who are the absolute downtrodden, the absolute outcasts. That's interesting as you read the Gospels. You need to understand they're, they're not just history. They're not less than history. Don't get me wrong. It is true history, but, but it's not just history. We don't have the entire account of Jesus' life. We have particular stories. We have snippets that the gospel writers chose to tell us, and they chose which stories to tell us and, and which ones to put beside other ones, and they're carefully crafted. A gospel is not just history. It's its own kind of genre that way. And so often, the, the flow of those stories from one to the next is what really tells the bigger story. And, and I think it's no coincidence that this story is here in chapter 4, in stark contrast to what we just saw in chapter 3. Somebody help me out. What's the key story in John 3? Who's the main character we meet there? Nicodemus. John 3.16. The, the story of the new birth. Nicodemus is the exact opposite of the Samaritan woman who was immoral. He's a Jewish man who is a Pharisee, which is to say ultra-moral. He has got his morals cranked up to 13. And I know that the term Pharisee today, we use it with kind of a certain amount of disdain, but that's not the way it was in Jesus' day. These were the good guys. These were the heroes. These were the spiritual leaders. And, and frankly, if we were going to put ourselves in that day, they're the ones we would have got along with. They were the ones saying, it's all about God's word. We need to believe God's word, all of it. We need to obey it and trust it. Now, yeah, Jesus shows us they got a lot of things dead wrong. But, but they were seeking to honor God. They were the keepers of God's word. And, and, and he was living this immaculate uh, moral life. And yet, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus with all of his perfect morality and stark contrast to this Samaritan woman, Jesus confronts him as well. John 3, 5 and 6, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, Sorry, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus says, you, you come proud, doing all of these outward things. You look so good, you've dotted all your I's, you've crossed all the T's, everything looks immaculate, but you're spiritually dead. You've put everything on truth, and you've forgotten entirely about heart. 
You have no spiritual life at all. And so Jesus replies to the, to the woman at the well later in, in John 4, but the Holy Spirit through John is, is actually replying both to Nicodemus and to the Samaritan woman. The worshipers, true worshipers, will also come from among those who are, who are self-righteous, those who put on this facade of morality, but, but it's not a straight shot for them either. Where the Samaritan woman was asking where to come to God, the, the practical issue of the temple, which mountain is the right mountain, Jesus redirects her to consider that true worshipers, those who worship rightly, we need to understand there are those who worship rightly and those who worship wrongly. And this is a call to worship both in spirit and in truth. He welcomes all to worship. He calls all to come to God, but he also confronts all, the wicked Samaritan and the moral Pharisee. And I think we ought to stop and ask, where do I find myself on that continuum? Do you see yourself maybe as a wretched sinner, far from God? I don't even know how to come to God, or if God would even want me What does it mean to worship? Where do I worship? How do I worship? I'm totally out of place. I don't understand. Am I doing it right? I feel a little lost here. Jesus' words are for you. Come and worship. Come and worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus himself said, Luke 19, 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. 1 Timothy 1 15, Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. What a glorious truth. There is nobody too far gone. There is no sinner too vile that Jesus has not come to welcome them to worship. Come to God. Maybe you're in the other seat. You know the, you know the Greek word for worship. In contrast to that silly Samaritan woman, you know the details of the temple and its construction and every element in it. You understand yourself, sure, to be a sinner. I mean, theologically, philosophically speaking, but let's just be honest. I mean, you have a pretty good pedigree of good works behind you. God's pretty lucky to have you on his team. To you also, Jesus says, come, come and worship but not only in truth, but also in spirit. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Joel 2, 12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Don't be so worried about that outward display. What's happening in your heart? Worship is not outward, it's inward. And again, we all find ourselves somewhere on this continuum from from Pharisee to Samaritan, between knowledge and pride on one hand and, and hopelessness and ignorance on the other, between wondering how we could possibly come to God as such a sinner or subtly, secretly thinking that that you're doing God a favor as you come to worship him. And I think many of us find ourselves maybe on other ends of the spectrum from one week to the next. And Jesus simultaneously welcomes us to worship and and confronts us as we come. True worshipers are those who worship in spirit and in truth. 
So let's unpack that a little bit. I think the second way that Jesus corrects her question is to say it's not about where you worship, it's about how you worship. And again, the Samaritan woman is concerned about worship in the right location. Do I go to Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim? And and Jesus says no. Now being a true worshiper is not about where you worship, it's about how you worship. What does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? If you were to read this kind of all by itself, you might think, well, clearly that's speaking of the Holy Spirit. And, and I think true worship does happen in the Holy Spirit, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Verse 24, I think, makes that clear. He says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so I think our worship must be in spirit in the same way that God is spirit. God is spirit. He has no physical form. Right When the Bible speaks of the, the hand of God or the, the eyes of the Lord, it's not meaning that God has some, some gigantic physical hand. But it's speaking of the acts of God using language that we understand, things that, that make sense to us as humans. Uh, if God were physical, like the, like the Greeks kind of presented their gods to be, then, then maybe worship of that God could be physical. Maybe he would need for us to bring him meat if he was hungry or drink so he would not be thirsty But God doesn't have a physical dimension. He's not physical. He's spirit. And so true worship of God has to happen in that spiritual reality. I think often we get in our heads that that we're doing God some kind of favor when we come and be physically present Sunday morning. Right? That's That's what it means to worship. I'll be there. Aren't you glad I'm here, God? What more do you want? Here I am. Or maybe... You give in the, in the offering time as a sense of duty. This is the right thing to do. God is now pleased with me. I've done my duty. I've checked that box because God needs my money, I guess. If I show up to church every week and I fill my seat in the pew and I dutifully give exactly 10% of my income every, uh, every month, then, then God will be impressed and I'll go to heaven because I've done my duty. We so easily fall into the same trap as the Pharisees, thinking that we just have to do all the right things. That's what Christianity is. It's, it's do, do, do. We would do well to hear the words of Paul to the men of Athens. Um, they were serving their very human-like gods, and Paul confronts them, Acts 17, and he says, you're serving those gods, but the God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in it, that God... Being Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in temples made by man. He's not served by human hands as if he needed something from you. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You have nothing that he has not given you. What do you think you would come to offer him in the first place? We we can't actually serve God in that conventional way that we think about it. There are many examples to the Old Testament of people who did all of the right things. They brought the right sacrifices. They went meticulously through the motions, but they were never true worshipers because because there was no spirit behind it. One of the clearest examples is Amos 5. Listen to the words of God. This is striking. 
He says, I hate, I despise redundantly. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Ouch. But, but God, these, these feasts, these assemblies, these grain offerings and peace offerings, these songs, this is exactly what you commanded them to do. How can you now tell them, I, I don't care. I hate it. They were doing the right things, but God is not pleased. Because it wasn't flowing out of a life transformed by faith. It was all outward. It was hollow, exterior, pride-driven obedience. And true worship is not an act of the body. It's an act of the spirit. It comes from the heart. How often is your worship just an outward act? So the first thing we need to see is that to worship in spirit uh, is to be spiritually alive. That's, that's step number one. That's exactly what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. You want to be part of the kingdom of God. If you want to see the kingdom, you must be born again. Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Yep, you were born from your mother and father and you are physically alive, but you are alive in the flesh and flesh doesn't worship God's spirit does. You need to be born again. You need a spiritual birth, spiritual life. We are born spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's what Ezekiel refers to as the, the heart of stone. It's no response. There's no life in it. And those that are spiritually dead don't worship. They cannot worship. My story was similar to Nicodemus. I spent years in the church spiritually dead. Raising my hands, getting emotional in worship. I read my Bible. I led Bible studies. Uh, anyone who knew me would have said he was an exemplary Christian, but it was absolutely all outward. I was spiritually dead. It was all exterior. It was all pride-driven. It was about me. I was trying to earn God's favor, and, and not one second of that outwardly immaculate service did any service to God, did any honor to his name. It wasn't worship. Uh, it was worship, but it was worship of me. Maybe you need to ask yourself, am I born again? Am I regenerate? Am I made new? Does my worship stem out of human effort to just impress God and try to gain and, and win his approval? Or does it flow out from the overflow of new spiritual life given by God, joyfully, gratefully resting in the wonder of God and his grace displayed on the cross. Anything less is absolute folly. It, it doesn't honor God. And frankly, it's just a really bad hobby. You should give it up. It's, it's not worth it. Of course, to worship in spirit, we need to be born again. We need that spiritual life but as we talk about worshiping in the Spirit, that's kind of the lowest bar we could set, right? Like that's just the entry way. Are you even spiritually alive? But, but for those who are saved, who have been given that spiritual life, there, there's still a call here to, to fully engage in that spiritual worship. What does it look like to, to obey this command to the fullest? 
I hope we all understand that worship is so much more than just singing. One of the main words used for worship in the New Testament is latria, which, which means to serve. It's a, it's a life of service of the Lord. And yet singing is probably the most focused, pure form of worship that we are commanded to. And note that we're commanded to sing numerous times through Scripture. Uh, Psalm 149.1, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song. His praise is in the assembly of the godly. Why do we sing so many new songs? Because we're commanded to. Why do we got to do all this singing stuff? Because we're commanded to. It's a curious thing. I don't know if you've noticed, angels don't sing. Angels always speak. Humans are the only creature that sings. I think it's very intentional. And we're commanded to sing. To, to stand here in the gathering, mouth closed and quiet, is sin. But it's more than that. Ephesians 5.19 pushes us further. You ought to sing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. It's not just lip service. But does your singing have passion and joy and heart and life to it? As you worship in singing, in serving, in giving, in loving, in forgiving, in sacrificing, is your spirit engaged? Is your heart there? What flows out from the spirit ought to be that joyful obedience. And and let's turn a bit of a corner here. I understand that it's spiritual, but that spiritual worship ought to affect the body, shouldn't it? I mean, I totally understand there's different personalities, different people have different levels of how they express themselves, but, but as you sing songs that overflow from your heart and you're spiritually engaged with God and worshiping Him, it would be very odd, and I would suggest nigh unto impossible that your body would show no sign of it. We know this intuitively on a human level. As you're talking with someone, having a, a, a personal, emotional conversation, you're pouring out your heart to them, and they're listening to you like this. What, what do you take from that? They're not listening. They don't care about me. Their, their body is saying something about what's happening inside of them. We make the assumption based on body language. And, and, I, and I know it's really hard for me to, to watch a hockey game or a football game with my hands at my side. Um, I'm, I'm not a huge sports nut, but when I watch sports, I kind of get into it. And, and when things happen, I, my, my heart gets excited and my hands want to move. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump a little bit. And my wife's going to shriek and wonder what's going on. Um, but, but, but the overflow of the heart affects the body. And in fact, in many ways, the movement of the body becomes the fulfillment of the overflow of the heart. I'm, I'm frustrated if my heart is leaping and my hands are stuck. Even unbelievers, moved emotionally by music, expressing, let's be honest, worship for their favorite musician. Go watch a rock concert. They're at the front with their arms up and swaying and their tears. and their, they're, they're emotionally engaged and their bodies are displaying it. How much more ought we? Be moved in worshiping the Lord God Almighty, celebrating this great salvation. Now, hear me. I'm not at all condemning those who don't raise their hands and worship. That's not what this is about. 
I'm not at all passing judgment on those who don't clap during worship. We were just talking about this the other day. Sometimes I can get it going and sometimes I got to either sing or clap, but I can't do both. Um, That's just the way God built me or the way I'm flawed. Um, But here's the point. True worship overflows from a full heart, fully engaged. Don't quell that. Don't stifle that. Don't let your pride or your self-consciousness or your, I don't know, fear that someone else is going to look at you and think you're crazy or a little too into it or whatever. Don't let that rob God of the full display of your heart and worship for him. We ought to come excited to worship. We ought to be overflowing and, and be free to express that. Some of you are thinking right now, John, I am. I'm fully engaged. My heart is full to overflowing and pouring out in worship as I rock side by side. Rock on. Great. Praise the Lord. If that's the truth, if you're, if you're overflowing with worship and that's the expression of your body, I, there's no judgment there. And, and I'm not seeing all of us. I mean, if you're looking across the aisle thinking, are they worshiping? Well, then am I worshiping? What am I doing? That's not what this is about. We're not here to to judge other people's expression of worship, but to encourage our own hearts and to come excited to worship our God. And, And I would just encourage us to be a gathering of passionate worshipers whose hearts are overflowing and who aren't afraid to just express that. We would worship in spirit, that we would come following the example of that Samaritan woman, broken desperate, hungry for God, eager to meet with him, whatever it takes. We would worship in spirit, but then secondly, true worshipers worship in truth. What does he mean by that? Well, it's significant that Jesus says the hour is coming and is now here. That phrase, the hour, if you're reading through the book of John, you ought to be circling that as you go. Josh, you get that for your John class coming up. You'll win some points. Um, He uses this this concept of the hour. I I just kind of buzzed through, and I think about five times um, leading up to chapter 12. Five times he says, the hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet here. And then chapter 12 is the turning point. And Jesus says, the hour is here. The hour has come. And he's speaking of his death on the cross that is then upon him. It's the coming of the new covenant. That's that's the hour that that John is speaking about, uh, or Jesus is speaking about here. Um, That hour when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. The truth of what is accomplished on the cross. That's what he's pointing to. And of course, we can't help but read that without flashing back to, I guess it's forward, John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How do you worship in the truth? Jesus is the truth. What does it mean to worship God in truth is to worship God in Jesus. The question of the Samaritan woman was, where do I worship? Which temple is the right temple? And Jesus' answer is, I am the temple. Temple is old covenant. And he's, and he's in this weird place, right? It's now here, I'm with you, but it's still coming at his death. That is going to be fully displayed and made clear. But worship is no longer mediated through a building. It's mediated through Jesus. 
similar to how worship in the Spirit requires us to have spiritual life, worship in the truth requires that we know the truth. There is no true worship of God that does not know Jesus, that does not come through Jesus. It's become popular today to wonder um, about maybe spirit is enough. What about that just genuinely sincere Muslim, that really passionate, desirous Hindu? Will God accept their worship? And the answer from this passage, I think along with many others, is no. Now, true worshipers not only worship sincerely, they worship rightly. They have to just be in spirit. They have to be in truth. And the truth is Jesus. We've got to see it. We're sinners. We are rebels against God who deserve damnation. There's, there's no way to please God. There's no way to honor Him that doesn't come through knowing and understanding and putting our faith and trust in what Jesus accomplished on the cross. That's our only hope. Any other avenue to bypass Jesus results in nothing but wrath. That's what we deserve. So worship in the truth first comes in Jesus, understanding him, knowing him. But again, that's, that's the low bar. That, that's just opening the door. That's the outer boundary of what it means to worship in the truth. What's at the heart of that? What's the fullest expression of that? We might be tempted to think that we leave Jesus behind then and we get on to other things. The whole cross thing, we just, we got to move past that and get into real worship. No, we go deeper into that. Reminds us, first of all, that worship and truth are not mutually exclusive. They're not at odds with one another. Quite the opposite. True worship is and must be deeply rooted in and flowing out from the truth of who God has revealed himself to be in Jesus? Now, obviously, if we think about it, worship that is not true about God doesn't glorify God, right? It, it, it falls flat. Is my, she's not here today so I can pick on her, is my brown-haired, blue-eyed wife honored if I tell her how much I absolutely love her jet black hair and green eyes? No, no. In fact, she's offended and she's now wondering, who is it exactly that you love? What's going on here? She was right to be offended. We so often do this to God. We come and and we worship him based on the God we wish he was rather than on the God that he's revealed himself to be. We need to be careful with that. Josh and I talk long about every song that comes up onto this screen going through it meticulously. Is it true? We don't want to worship God for what we think he might be or what we wish he was, but who he has revealed himself to be. And our worship of him will always be richer and fuller the more it reflects the truth of who he is. Going back to the example of husband and wife, my wife is particularly honored If I speak of my love for her in specific, intimate, perceptive detail rather than surface, general ways, right? She knows I love her hair. I often compliment her on her hair. But how much more is she honored as I tell her that I love her for personal, intimate details, things that nobody else knows about her, things that I have seen because I'm I'm communicating to her that I love you enough that I'm paying attention to you and I know how you operate. 
the worship of God will always be greater and more worthy of Him, and, and He will be seen as more worthy of our worship the more we get to know Him. Now here's the thing. I, I know this will shock some of you. It shocked me in the early days of our marriage. But as I got to know my wife better and better, there are a myriad of things that caused me to love her more. But there were a, a couple of things, small and few and far between, but things that actually are less than desirable. Things that weren't all I hoped they would be. Things that I had to overlook and even forgive and sometimes even confront and correct. But the same is not said of God. We don't find ourselves in a position of having to forgive God. Having to overlook faults in God. Deuteronomy 32.4 The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. I love Psalm 119.68. Just simple. You are good and you do good. You are good and you do good. That's our God. That's who he is. In his very essence, he is the very standard of what is right and true and honorable and good. And so the greater our theology, our study of God, will always lead to greater doxology, worship of God. Greater education is the groundwork for greater exaltation. This verse calls us to study. Because the more we know about Him, the more we will see of His glory, and the more we will love Him, the more we will rightly worship Him. And the more we worship Him with worship that is steeped in those deep truths of who He is, the more it displays the wonder of His glory. Theology is not for dusty old men in the library. It is not cold scientific dissection of God. It is the fuel for the fire of, of white-hot, passionate worship of the glorious God. That's what Jesus means when he calls us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Use your mind. It's worship in spirit and in truth. And so as we prepare songs to sing on Sunday, we're intentionally choosing songs that aren't just true about God, but that are rich with truths about God, that fill our hearts and our minds with how God works and who He is. Engage in that. Worship with your mind. And as you grow your mind and your understanding of who God is and what He has done, it will fill your worship. Understanding total depravity will take a song like All I Have is Christ and just flood it with meaning and fill your heart with gratitude. The Bible is so full of these rich truths. Understanding justification by faith alone will take a song like In Christ Alone and it's like turning on the stadium lighting to see the spectacular picture of what's there. And as all worship, this, this goes beyond just singing, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of this, this focal point, but, but let's not forget the broader context. 
Specific understanding of who God is ought to flow out into specific and appropriate worshipful obedience in our lives. If you're having a hard time obeying, you probably have a heart problem, but you probably also have a theology problem. You're not believing God to be who he says he is. Because that's what ought to drive and sustain not just our singing, but a life of worshipful obedience. If you, if you don't know God, if you're not rooted in who he is and this great gospel, you're in trouble. You, you have no ballast in your boat for the storms and trials of this life. You'll have no wind in your sails for obedience because you're not understanding what it is that's meant to drive that obedience. And then it becomes cold, hard, pharisaical duty rather than grateful, joyful obedience. Just a couple of examples. It's the knowledge of God that ought to sustain generous giving. And, And Paul plays that out for us. He's motivating the Corinthians to give joyfully and sacrificially in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. In in nerd speak, he's saying you need to understand the condescension and humiliation of the incarnation and the crucifixion so that you will give generously like God gave generously, like Christ gave generously. Understanding those theological context concepts drives our obedience. Our love for others, our forgiveness for others ought to be driven by an understanding of salvation by grace alone. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Well, how did God in Christ forgive me? I don't know. I don't understand that. Well, then you're going to have a hard time replicating that. You're going to have a hard time living out that reality toward others. But the more you dig down and understand the forgiveness that you have from God in Christ, the richness of that, the fullness of that, the undeserving nature of that, the more you will then be free in your heart to forgive others. So if you're harboring bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart, it means you're, you're deficient in your understanding or you're bringing to heart the truth of God's forgiveness. Theology drives worship. Theology drives obedience. I wish we could go on and on on this, and in a sense we will. Because knowing God fully and letting that knowledge transform the way we live is just the process of sanctification that will play out from now until the day we die. And more than that, that will be the endless cycle that will keep us absolutely enraptured and overjoyed into eternity of exploring God and letting that exploration and education of who God is produce a greater exaltation in his glory. One last observation from this passage. I'm not even going to unpack it. I'm just going to put it out there for us to see. The last phrase there in verse 23. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. Josh, why don't you come as we just stop to pause and recognize This isn't about them. 
This isn't about Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. I guess it, it was, but this is about us. God is saying to us, I am desiring, I am seeking that kind of worshiper. Will we be the kind of worshipers the Father desires? Will Redemption Church be a people and a place that, that overflow with a passionate, heartfelt, truth-filled worship of the one true God? Will you? Will you be a, a true worshiper, worshiping in spirit and in truth? 